Well, we're going to spend time in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And we are in a series called Indomitable Faith. We don't want to be overcome in our faith. We want to be solid. We want to be secure. We want to be conscientious. And the book of 2 Corinthians, as Paul wrote this ancient letter to the Corinthian church, really helps us to understand how to be stronger than we currently are in our faith. So we're going to ask that the Lord would bless us through his word and that every one of us could leave here today with something to put into practice. So Lord, that's our prayer. We want you to bless us. We want to be a blessing to you. We want to live our lives for your honor and your glory. We want to make disciples. We want to see more people baptized. We want to impact our world. We want to help the widow, the orphan. We want to speak into justice issues. But Father, we also need to be strong in our faith. We need to understand what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow the Lord. And so to all who are Christians here today, Lord, I pray that they would be specially blessed. And if folks are here, perhaps have come to see the baptisms or whatnot that are not Christians, um, whether they agree or disagree with what is said, Lord, we'll leave that to you. But we pray that they would at least understand what we're saying, what matters to us, and the difference that it can make in their lives for your honor and for your great glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've sort of already started off by priming the pump and getting you thinking a little bit about some of the challenges in our world with our promotion of Coram Deo. But I want to kind of come back to this, this topic of some of the challenges we're experiencing in our world. If you're anything like me, sometimes you probably find yourself getting really upset, really discouraged, really bummed out by what you see taking place in our world and perhaps even its effects on your own faith walk. Now, when we get upset at the circumstances of life, in part, that can be a good thing. Because one thing I have noticed is that people that never get upset, people that never get angry, uh, tend to often spiral into a bit of an emotional funk. They get depressed. They struggle with severe anxiety because they're, they're not allowing themselves to acknowledge the, um, the emotional response that we all should have when we see something or hear something or experience something that's taking place in our world. Getting upset allows you to vent or express your disdain or forces you at least to think through the issues. But at the same time, being upset at what's going on in the world can also be incredibly discouraging. It can just kind of drag you down. And yes, you might believe in the promises of God. And yes, you might be surrounded by so many wonderful people as I am in this church and outside of this church. But at times, things just seem really, really dark, don't they? We have people stealing other people's possessions and getting away with it. We are regularly exposed to false teaching Sometimes in churches, in religious establishments, through the, through the media, presenting us with lies. Uh, oftentimes we you know, elect people into positions of power and we find out they turn kind of slimy on us. And that's discouraging. Our country continues to permit infanticide. We have no laws to stop it. And then we are confronted with our own personal failings. We all have ideals that we're trying to measure up to. And if you're like me, and I know you are, you're going to fail 
And that can discourage you. We see and hear pictures of war taking place in our world. All of this, all of this can rob us of our joy and deplete us of our energy and leave us feeling pretty discouraged. But there is hope. If anything I've said up till now is symptomatic of your life, there is hope. So here's what you need to know. The clear teaching of God's word brings life and light. This is the blessing of having the Bible, which far too many people spend far too little time reading and reflecting upon. But the word of God taught and understood brings life and it also brings light. It brings perspective on the circumstances around us. How so? Well, let's spend time in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And in verse 1, the first lesson that we learn is that we let the word encourage us. This is one of the blessings of God's word. God's word serves to encourage us. So we come, we come home from work, kind of upset. We just watched the news. We're feeling kind of bluesy or mad. We just failed and we're like, ah, when am I going to stop failing? And we get into the word of God. We need to allow the word to encourage us. As Paul, in this context, if you're joining us, Paul is struggling with some false accusations that were made against him as a minister of the gospel, a minister of the new covenant, the message of the cross, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet in all of that, Pretty dark times, pretty discouraging times. He says this, Therefore, having this ministry, as a preacher of the gospel, as a follower of Jesus Christ, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Now this is a fascinating statement. As Paul struggled under the burden and weight of false accusations. If you've ever been falsely accused of things, and, and I have many times in my capacity as a minister, it, it can get you pretty upset. It's like, why would you say that about me? It's so, so not true. Like, I have a lot of flaws. Comment on those. Don't make things up. It can be pretty discouraging. As Paul struggled under the weight of accusation, it was his continual engagement in New Covenant gospel ministry that encouraged him. He understood, as we do, the blessings of the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the scriptures, the opportunity to herald a message that is not your own, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He understood concepts of grace, which is a beautiful thing. Mercy, the blessing and opportunity of being able to preach God's word to others. The beauty of being able to make disciples. All of these things encouraged Paul in the broader context of 2 Corinthians. And it is that same beautiful message which has been entrusted to you and me and our generation that can also refresh us and encourage us and inspire us in our faith. It really can. Susie and I often spend time as we're driving from the church to home and back, talking just about the state of our church and different observations we have and 
the wonderful people that are part of this church and the lives that are being transformed. We also talk sometimes about people that seem a little discouraged, a little bit distracted. And we talk about this as leaders as well. And without fail, without fail, when we see people spiritually nosediving, you can always trace it back to their lack of Bible reading, lack of Bible belief, or lack of Bible appropriation, putting it into practice in their daily lives. It's kind of like love. When was the first time you said to that special other, if you're old enough, you know what? I love you. You remember that moment? Special moment? Now, when you said it, you actually thought it and felt it earlier than you said it. You believed it to be true. But there's something about saying it that transforms the relationship and takes it to a new level, kind of solidifies it. This person loves me. I love her. We love each other. A lot of Christians believe the word of God to be true. They feel it on a certain level. They would say, yeah, this is my belief system, but they don't express it. They don't preach it. They don't say it. They don't talk about it in their homes. Even in Christian homes, in churches like this, we have godly people that love the Lord that bring their kids to church. But then they go home and they don't, they don't talk about these things with their children. And they wonder why at times they fail to produce disciples. I took the kid to church and dropped him off at youth group every Friday night. Why has my child wandered from the faith? They haven't talked about it. They haven't allowed it to infect and affect their Monday, their Tuesday, their Wednesday, and so forth. When we engage in gospel ministry, we actually preach the gospel. We, we stick with it. We continue to be, as Paul was, ministers of a new covenant. This serves to galvanize us and build us up in our faith. The gospel serves this intent. The gospel is meant to arrest your mind and clarify your thinking. The gospel is meant to arrest your heart and affect your emotions, your love for God. The gospel is a blessing. And in life, when you are challenged as Paul was, the temptation is going to be what? To give up. To walk away. We could call these kinds of people stop and start Christians. When life gets tough, they stop worshiping. They stop reading. They stop praying. They stop serving. And things never get better when they do that. But when we keep serving and stick with it, God blesses us. Sadly, with all the enemies that we have to deal with in life, sometimes we are our own worst enemies. And we fail to continue to live out our calling. Now, yes, there's going to be circumstances in life that are hard, that are going to try to sideline you. You're driving your car. You run out of gas. You roll over onto the shoulder. What is your next step? 
you get more gas. You refill the tank somehow. You call CAA. You walk to the local gas station. You call a friend. You refill the gas tank and you get back on the road. You don't run out of gas and stay on the shoulder for the next 25 years. At times in the Christian life, it's going to feel like you ran out of gas. I just don't know. There's no promise. There's no word. There's no blessing right now that can kind of keep me going. And too many Christians, I've seen it. I've been a Christian for over 40 years. They pull over to the side of the road and they just stay there. Life is too hard. I'm going to stop serving, stop worshiping, stop praying, stop reading. They just stay there. They're stuck. The word of God is like fuel. We pour it into our lives and it gives us energy and perspective, the ability to get back on the path that God has designed for us. Let me go back to Psalm 1 to illustrate this. Psalm 1 is obviously the first Psalm of 150. I think one of our young men today read from the the final Psalm. But Psalm 1 starts this way. And let let me read three or four verses for you and just highlight some key words here. So Psalm 1 starts with this, blessed. You want to be blessed? You better lean in. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. That's our temptation. That's our natural bent. To just go the way of the world, to be dragged down, to compromise our faith, to walk from righteousness. But blessed is the man who doesn't do those things, but his delight, that's, that's an emotional word. That's, a, that's a, a will word. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And how often does he think about it? And on his law, he meditates day and night. All the time, never leaves him. What does this do for such a man? Verse three says, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. That's, a, that's a, a symbol of stability, symbol of being solid and secure. And here's how God responds to such a man. In all he does, he prospers. In everything he does, he prospers. He prospers in his relationships. He prospers in his goals. We're not talking about a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel where we somehow use or abuse God for our own material purposes. But on a spiritual level, he always prospers. There's always prosperity in meditating day and night upon God's word. And we don't meditate day and night on God's word. There is no prosperity. The wicked are not so. So the contrast is the solid tree to this, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Grain has a husk on it. When you separate the husk from the actual seed, that's the chaff. You just blow it away. Those that do not meditate day and night upon God's word are like the chaff. They just get blown away. They're not solid. Their lives are not stable. Their lives, frankly, are disastrous. But the person that meditates day and night upon God's word has perspective and hope and meaning given to them. Secondly, we are straightforward and truthful. Verse two says, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, 
we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. You know, every area of life has the potential to draw in dishonest people. You can go to university and study law, pledge to uphold the Constitution, and be a scumbag lawyer. You can go study education, being, be given a, a tenured position at a university or a high school or elementary school, and be a really terrible teacher, not prepared, not having your students' best interest in mind, not telling them the truth. You can be in politics and have no interest in representing the people, just accumulating power and influence and money for yourself. You can be in banking and steal people's money. You can be a businessman or businesswoman and take advantage of your customers. Every area of life has the potential to draw in dishonest people. And guess what? The same is true when it comes to Christianity. The same is true. You can have people that preach and teach and proclaim the word of God, pardon my language, that are scumbags, that twist the word of God, that take advantage of the people under their care, that manipulate people for their own gain. As Paul is confronted with all of these challenges, I'm sure there was temptations. Well, how can I use my office to get these people back? How can I use the, the word of God as sort of my opportunity to, to manipulate and bring them on my side? It's like, I'm not going to do that. As I preach the word of God, he says, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We're not going to be cunning about it. We're not going to mess with God's word. We're going to tell people what God has said. Look at the language of the text. But by the open statement of the truth, you'll notice in our foyer, we have our four pillars, and one of them is unapologetic preaching. Our perspective is we're creatures, all of us together. God is the creator. Creatures don't apologize to other creatures what the creator has said. We don't mess with God's word. We don't round off the edges if they're sharp. We don't add sharp edges if they're round. We don't mess, and mess with or manipulate God's word. The word of God can be used properly, preached clearly, articulately, accurately, urgently, applicationally, or it can be used in a disgraceful or deceptive way. There's four ways that this can express itself. The word disgraceful is the first one. That's in the text here. And this reminds us that sometimes people have a temptation to treat the word of God in a cavalier way. They're, just not, they're not serious about it. They're, they're sloppy in their study. They're sloppy in their thinking. They're sloppy in their preaching. Or they just sort of are dismissive of the word of God underhanded. This would refer to some, someone who's manipulating God's people through the word of God, being very selective in what texts they preach to their own benefit, to build a case for their man-inspired rather than God-inspired beliefs. Cunning, when we use the word of God to deceive people or tampering, when we twist it. And by the way, twisting the word of God can express itself in two forms. 
taking a text and forcing it to mean something that it doesn't actually mean. That's twisting God's word. But there's another way you can do that, not preaching the whole counsel of God's word. So for example, if every Sunday I were to get up and I were to say, hey, God loves you, 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 and that means he's for you, he's not against you, he sent his son to die for you, and you know, he has plans for you to prosper you, that's all absolutely true. But there's the flip side as well. God hates sin. God will not tolerate sin. God will judge you for your sin. God will damn you for your sin. You have a responsibility if you've experienced God's grace and mercy to live a life of obedience and surrender to him. This provides balance. So God, as Daniel mentioned today, God doesn't just exist to make your life better. God exists to bring glory to himself. The mission of God is actually his own glory. That's God's mission. We get to participate in that and we're blessed by that. So this would be an example of where if I was cowardly in my faith, I'd be like, oh, what's, what's gonna be the best sell today at church? A love message. What's gonna run people out of the church? A judgment message. So I'm just gonna preach the love message every week. No expectations. It's all about you. This doesn't build mature disciples. So we can twist God's word by literally manipulating a text, or we can twist God's word by not teaching the whole counsel of God's word. And both of these things we have to be conscious of in our approach. So we can be deceptive and disgraceful, or as Paul chooses, we should choose, we should openly state that which is true. But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. What this does when we openly declare the truth, it works for me, it works for you and your relationships, is it's a way of commending yourself to others. It's a way of saying, look, I've just told you something that's hard. Clearly, I'm not trying to manipulate you. I just told you something that's true. Clearly, I'm not a religious salesman. There's something about telling someone the truth. Even if they don't like it, they appreciate you for it. Like I may agree, I may disagree, but you know what? I appreciate the fact this person always tells me the truth. They don't lie, they don't deceive, they don't twist God's word. They just tell me the truth. And so on the level of conscience, they have a certain trust in you because you tell them the truth. Folks, we live in a world that <laughs> is filled with liars. Filled with liars. Example of this, we just had this canopy put off the side of the church, one of our staff members was telling me this this morning. It was supposed to be in in September, right? Because when we're processing people, we don't want to get rained on and snowed on. So like, what's the delay? So one of our staff calls the secretary and says, hey, you, 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 you said you were supposed to be here like last week or whatever. And the secretary must have had the phone on like um, intercom. So she can hear the guy in the background saying something like, Oh, I already lied to that church. I told them we were going to be here last week, but we're not ready yet. So she hears this <laughs> from this salesman or installer or whatever. And later when he comes, she has the opportunity to kind of, well, he actually finally admitted it. And she had this gracious conversation. Hey, people lie to us all the time. In business, in the media, 
in science, people are fallible and they lie, knowingly or naively, they lie to us. But far be it from us as ministers of a new covenant to lie to people about eternal truth. God has written a book. How shameful would it be for us to manipulate or twist or half preach what God has said? This is disgusting. And we need to avoid that at all costs. By the way, when you openly state the truth, what you'll find is you have a more restful life. You have a more fruitful life. In many respects, you have an easier life. You'll get some challenges and pushback. But when you just tell people the truth, rather than living under the burden of deception, it's a blessed thing. Don't apologize to people for what God has said. If you do, you actually are lying to them. Truth transforms and it is beautiful. Gimmicks. Twisting the truth confuses people and robs them of life, but truth brings life and light. Third, when we preach the truth, we also understand the spiritual dynamics of proclamation. We try to be in tune to this when we're preaching or teaching or sharing our faith with our neighbor over the fence. Be in tune to the fact that you are actually involved in a spiritual battle. It's not just what do you think? Here's what I think. Well, this is what I think. What do you think? It's not just an exchange of ideas. When we minister the gospel, we are in a spiritual battle. Paul understood this in verses three and following. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled. So in other words, in other words sometimes when you preach it, people are like, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't get it or I don't I don't quite understand it. Even when it's veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is a fascinating statement and it aligns with many others like Romans chapter three. It's a fascinating statement because here we are into error preaching truth. But when the person who is perishing, meaning the person that has not yet inherited eternal life because they've not accepted Jesus Christ as their savior, hears our truth, it can at times seem like it's veiled. Remember last chapter, we talked about Moses going up onto the mountain and he came down with the Ten Commandments on a stone, but he had to wear a veil because he'd been, he'd, seen, he'd been in the presence of God and the glory of God had impacted literally his physique, his physical expression. He was like glowing. Not because he was around some you know, nuclear waste, but because he was around God. And 
Paul uses that imagery of a person being veiled because they've been in the presence of God. He uses that illustration now in reference to someone who, who can't fully and accurately see your face. So when I was doing baptisms today, I had my mask on. You couldn't see me smiling. You could see my eyes, my ears, but you, you couldn't see me fully. I, I was somewhat veiled to you. And when the gospel is preached, there's parts of it that lost people understand, but part of it is also veiled. They, they don't fully understand it. We also preach the gospel and sometimes we might think, well, it's, it's not working or it's, it's not making a difference. And we're like, why? Like I was clear. I was logical. I was compelling. I was gracious. I was relational and so forth and so on. And it's still not working. Why is that the case? Well, here's your answer to that dilemma. The Bible acknowledges that the gospel is veiled to those who are dying. Why? Because of spiritual blindness. So when you're born, your body's alive, your soul's alive, but your spirit is dead. It's not injured. It's dead. The spiritual dimension to you is it's not working. And this is why in Ephesians chapter 2, it says you're dead in your trespasses and sins. But then later in the passage, God makes us alive in Christ. This is called regeneration, where your spirit is regenerated. The spiritual blindness is also a result of the devil who hates your guts, who doesn't want you to understand the truth. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And this is a categorical statement. It's like without exception. And that is why you can never fully trust a lost person, a spiritually perishing person. They don't have the righteousness of Christ operative in their lives. They don't see the world like you do. They, they have not yet been spiritually transformed. They, they think differently. They have a different worldview. You should expect it and anticipate it. And they're demonically blinded. The devil's working overtime to bring confusion into our world. We see this time and time again. Like smart, logical, well-educated people still argue that it's okay to snuff out the life of a child before it's born. It's like it's human in every way. It has its own DNA, its own body. It's functioning it looks like a human. It's acting like a human. But the lie is, well, what about rights? It doesn't, doesn't make any sense. But if you tell the same lie enough, people will start to believe it. Just tell them the same thing over and over and over again. Hashtag it. That's a really effective way of lying. Just get a hashtag together. Just tell them one side of the story over and over and over again. And then if there's any opposition, well, then, then create your attacks against the opposition. Well, they're, they're bigots, they're anti-freedom, they're, they, they hate women. Just tell the lies to sustain your, like the, the lies of our world that people, we have increasingly people lying about employment. We have people that for some, they think money grows on trees. They've been convinced that the world owes them a living. This is not biblical. The Bible says if you don't work, you don't eat. But if you tell people long enough and consistently enough that the government owes you your existence, 
owes you your health care, owes you a long and prosperous life, owes you, people start to believe it. And it's a lie. What, what motivation is there to work if you can't get ahead of someone else? There's none. You tell people the same lies over and over again. You tell people you evolved from slime. You get people with PhD after their name. You evolved from slime. You just tell them that over and over again. The world's been around for billions and billions. Of, just tell them the same thing over and over and over again. And then, if you're a real genius, you take all those people with PhDs that disagree with that perspective and you disallow them from teaching in your universities, which is exactly what happens in our country. And so you just feed the lie and you replicate the lie and you never allow opposition and you never allow public dialogue. And then you call people ignorant and you know, nut jobs if they believe otherwise. You just tell the same lie over and over. And you know what? In all of this, the devil is having a heyday. Having a heyday. I think the person that's partying the most in our world today is the devil himself because he's working his magic and the masses have bought into all these lies. And they try to defend them. And they try to legislate to protect them and to silence their opponents. Folks, we are in a battle for truth, but we're also in a spiritual battle. So what is our response? We continue to proclaim Christ, not self. We defend Christ, not self. We do it for God's sake and God's glory alone. Paul speaks about this. For the God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So I often think back to my conversion as a boy and it's fascinating that this passage uses the imagery of light and darkness because on an experiential level, that's exactly what I encountered. It was like I was being told the truth and I just didn't get it. And I was told the truth again and it was literally like you could have turned on a light and it was like, bingo, and now I understood. And, I, and God transformed me in that moment. If you've received truth, you know it to be true. And you walk by faith in that truth. By the way, faith is not believing in fairy tales and fiction or just trusting in your own sentiment. Faith is like a sixth sense. You know it's true. It's, abs it's as true as your own existence. But it's, it's not necessarily accessible by the eyes, the nose, the ears, your ability to touch or smell. It's, a, it's God enlivening your spirit. You know something is true and it's impacted your hearts and your minds. So we go and we preach the truth. Yes, we preach the truth. And if we don't preach the truth, lives aren't transformed. How do we know that? Romans chapter 10, verse 14 says, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are, they, how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without something, someone preaching? So God uses preachers to proclaim the message so that people might have something to hear, so that they might have something to believe in. Yes, that's true. But behind the scenes, we've learned that God is the one actually pulling the strings. God is the one actually enabling people to understand, regenerating people, spiritually rebirthing people. And this is a beautiful thing because we want to be, you know, uh, diligent and determined ministers of the gospel. But at the same time, there's like a, 
<sighs> okay. I don't have to change people's minds. I don't have to twist people's arms. I don't have to call the shots. God is going to do what God is going to do. I'm going to be responsible. I'm going to show up to work and I'm going to do my job, but I'm going to let God do what only God can do. So yes, life can get discouraging. But if you kind of expect that it's going to be dark, it can take the edge off of it. I think it's the surprise factor that sometimes throws us off. But when you expect it, people are going to reject it. The world's going to get worse before it is renewed. It takes the edge off. And in all of that, we continue to serve the Lord as foreign ambassadors, seeking to bring life and light into a dark world, all the while retaining it for ourselves, not wavering in our faith, believing in the promises of God, trusting in the Lord, reading the word of God, allowing it to enlighten our minds and our hearts that we might be encouraged and built up in our faith to the honor and glory of God and to the blessing of God's people. Church, be encouraged by these words. Be a student of scripture. This doesn't mean you got to get your pen out every night, your papers and do you know, 25 pages of notes and hour after hour of deep exegesis into the text. But spend some time reading God's word every day. Just meditating on it. Take it with you. Talk about it with those around you and proclaim it to a lost and dying world to the glory of the king and again to the benefit of ourselves. So let's commit ourselves to doing this in Jesus' name. 